hearts free from the law, oh happy condition. Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 18. It's a lot of theology in this chapter. This is another one of those chapters where Matthew appears to have collected a series of sayings by Jesus. Matthew does this several times during his gospel. If you compare Luke's account, Luke tried to put the various events and sayings of Jesus into a more chronological order, and you'll notice some differences between Matthew and Luke, where they quote the same things but in slightly different order, 
because Matthew did have a tendency to kind of collect the sayings of Jesus and sometimes would put them together. And all of chapter 18 is Jesus teaching an instruction that Matthew found valuable enough to list for us. Now, you have to remember that in the original letter, in the original version of the Gospel of Matthew, there were no chapter headings and there were no verse headings. Far too often people seem to think that when they see uh, an 18, like chapter 18, that suddenly this is the beginning of a whole new series of thoughts, but originally there was a flow to it. Originally, Matthew was just telling the story as he recalled it, as the Holy Spirit inspired him. And so we're going to look at this chapter in bits and pieces, but it is all cohesive. So I'm hoping that over the course of the next couple of weeks, as we look at this section of Matthew, that we don't lose the cohesion as we get into the details. Chapter 18, right away, Jesus starts talking about conversion. And he's going to say, unless you are converted... The Greek word there is strepho, and at its root, it means to turn. You might recall that when Jesus was dealing with Peter, when he said, I've prayed for you that your faith fail not, and when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. Well, in that case, it was epistrepho, which actually means turn toward, but it has that same idea of turning, being turned. There is also in the Greek language an apostrepho, which means to turn away. But in this instance, what Jesus is talking about is the necessity of being changed, being turned. Left to yourself, left to your natural condition, left to the way that you were born, unturned, then you will continue to do the sorts of things that we see the apostles doing over and over again. Not only did they not understand Jesus when he said repeatedly that he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to be handed over to men and he was going to be beaten, he was going to die, three days later he'd be back. They understood none of that because without the Spirit of God, human beings simply do not understand the Word of God, the plan of God, the intention of God. You need the Spirit of God to grasp all of that. Holy Spirit didn't come until Pentecost. John even takes the time to tell us in his gospel that the reason they didn't understand was because the Spirit had not yet come. Once the Holy Spirit came, as Jesus promised them, the Holy Spirit would remind them of everything he said, and so the Spirit of truth would guide them as they went out preaching the word, which is why he told them, Don't go out and preach yet, just like at the Mount of Transfiguration when he told them, don't tell anybody yet, not until you're empowered, not until you're turned, not until you're converted. Then you can go and tell this because you'll be able to tell it accurately. Now, one of the characteristics of unturned, unconverted people is that they are self-centered. And that's going to be the next conversation that we see here in chapter 18. The apostles themselves, who have been walking and talking with Jesus for nearly three and a half years, 
who have seen him pray to the Father, who have heard a voice from heaven announce, this is my beloved son, hear him, they're still going to get into a discussion, an argument with each other about which of them will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I see you all shaking your heads. It's kind of hard to believe. But what it is a demonstration of is natural human ego without the power of God. The characteristic of a changed man, of a turned man, of a converted man, as we're going to see this morning, is that he cares about others. Natural human beings don't care about others. Natural human beings, me, all me, me first, completely me. We're seeing that right now. It's so easy to see. We live in a very celebrity-driven culture. And all of those celebrities are full of pride and arrogance and braggadocio. Sports stars are full of braggadocio. Our presidential contenders <laughs> are full of braggadocio and self-centeredness and ego. And so we see it on display so much that we've kind of become numb to it. We've become immune to it. But you have to remember how offensive that is to God. From God's perspective, all of this self-sufficiency, all of this human aggrandizement is all offensive. Because, as I've said over and over again, in the Bible and in heaven, there's only one hero. And it's not you. God gets all the glory. Christ is the only hero. And the center of and purpose for all of human life is the glorification, praise, and worship of God, the creator. And yet human beings think it's about them. Start with me. It's all about me. And so these men, still unconverted, three and a half years with Jesus, don't have the spirit of God yet in their unconverted state, are able in his own presence to argue about which one of them is going to be great. Isn't that just human nature? So he says to them, first you have to be converted. That's the root of all of it. You have to be changed in order to have any comprehension of God's things. You know, John 3, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, is the place where you see Jesus say to Nicodemus, you must be born again, born an oath and born from above. Well, what does that tell you about your first birth? It tells you that your first birth was not sufficient. Human ego says, the fact that I'm here the fact that I exist is sufficient enough for you to dig me because I exist, here I am. That counts for nothing in heaven. That counts for nothing eternally. The fact that you've been born once will only get you what the book of Revelation calls the second death. If you're born once, you get to die twice. But if you are born twice, if you're born physically and then born again spiritually by the power and the spirit of God, then the second death, according to Revelation 20, has no power on you, no power over you, no second death for you. You might die physically, but you live forever spiritually. So the biblical math is be born once, die twice, or be born twice, die once, or my preference what Paul calls a mystery, 
We'll all be changed, but we won't all die. So some people, born twice, no death. Which to me just sounds like fun. I just I want to do that. That instantaneous change in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. This corruptible will put on incorruptibility. This mortal will put on immortality. Oh, yes, please. I would like to participate in that. But worse comes to worse, if I do end up going to the grave, I'll be back. Coming up out of my grave in the likeness of Christ's resurrection to be raised up into the air to meet him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. All of that is the result of conversion. It starts at conversion. It starts at being turned, being changed. Now, this turning idea, this turning concept, we've talked before about the word repentance. The word repentance essentially means to turn from something to something. So that idea permeates this language, this concept of of being regenerated, of being born again, or in this case, being converted. It all means turning, turning away from your sinful desire, turning away from yourself, your ego, your flesh, and turning to Christ, turning toward the things of God, which are then exemplified, played out by how you treat other people. And that's what Jesus is going to demonstrate here. Got it? We're doing good. We started on time. Now the introduction's already over. So, you know, you're going to get out of here at a reasonable time. (laughs) Or not. Chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, just so you understand where that question comes from, keep your finger right there in Matthew and turn to Mark chapter 9 for a moment. Let's read the parallel rendering of that conversation. Mark chapter 9. Because Mark does, as he so often does, Mark fills in a couple of blanks, probably because he's under Peter's tutelage, and Peter is able to fill in a few blanks here. Mark chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, saying, what were you discussing on the way? As we were walking on our way here, you all were involved in a big discussion. What were you discussing? Verse 34, but they kept silent, apparently out of embarrassment, because they don't really want to admit to him oh, we were discussing which one of us is the greatest, as opposed to, you know, you being great. So they kept silent, for on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Well, so he, sitting down, called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all, and servant of all. Okay, back to Matthew. There's the basic concept. If you want to be great from a heavenly perspective, then you lay your life down and greatness is accomplished through servitude. This is another one of those uh, paradoxes that the Bible is so comfortable with that we're just not comfortable with. 
we in the Western world like things to kind of follow a A equals B kind of plan. And so we like things to just be straight and logical and you be great by achieving greatness. And you live by living and you get rich by accumulating wealth to yourself. And the Bible says the opposite. And it says you get by giving and you live by dying and you achieve greatness by being the least of all. Completely antithetical to the way human beings think and act and all of human philosophy and society says, no, greatness is achieved by being the important one. And Jesus says, greatness is achieved by being the least of all. And then he demonstrates it because remember when they gathered together for the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, his final Passover with them. The first thing that he does is that he took off his robe and he put on a towel and he took on the position of the lowest servant in the household. The lowest servant was the one that had to wash feet. Usually the foot washing servant wasn't allowed to look up from the feet. He had to concentrate on people's feet and that was his job be there at the door or when people come in and sit, remembering that they were walking there in the Middle East in dust and dirt and sand. And so everybody's feet were filthy. And so if you had a house with any kind of a tiled floor and you didn't want all that dirt being tracked in, you had a servant who waited by the door and cleaned people's feet. And he was genuinely the lowest of the low in the household. And so Jesus put a towel on and washed the disciples' feet. And they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. There was even a discussion with Peter where Peter said, no, you'll never wash my feet. And then Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And then typical Peter, he goes, well, then just wash me all over. (laughs) And he says, no, no, no. Those that are clean need not to be washed except for their feet. And then the very interesting and cryptic phrase, he says, but you're not all clean. And then we're told parenthetically, that he was talking about Judas. Okay, so the point is that Jesus himself demonstrated what it was to take on the low seat, what it was to be servant. He was servant to these guys who at that time, at the Lord's Supper, were about to flee. They were about to abandon him, and he knew it. He'd been walking and talking with them for three and a half years. He'd been providing for them. He'd been feeding them, as we saw last week, even paying their taxes. He'd been taking care of them for three and a half years, and now he's washing their stinky, smelly feet, and they still don't get it. They still don't understand, and yet he served them. Sacrifice means that you do for others not expecting anything in return. If you do for others, expecting that they will then do something for you, that's an exchange of value. That's not sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. That's fair. But sacrifice is, I will do for you what is best for you simply because I value you. Whether I get anything out of it or not. Whether you give anything back to me or not. And if you can't find it within yourself to sacrifice for other people, if there's somebody in the room that you so dislike that you just say, but I would never sacrifice for them. You know, there's certain people in the room, sure, I'll sacrifice, but some people just, no. 
Well, if you can't do it for their sake, Jesus is about to say, do it for my sake. Because after all, he sacrificed himself. Sacrificed himself so much that not only did he take on the form of the servant when he washed their feet, he took on the form of a servant when he hung on a cross for them and took the wrath of God for them so that they would never have to give account to God for their own sin, their own rebellion, or their own depravity. That's a remarkable sacrifice. And remember, he's doing that for people who still don't get it, for people who are abandoning him, running away. He's doing it for sinners. And what did he get from them in return that made it worth it? Nothing. So that in eternity, they will stand as trophies of grace, demonstrating that he did it all, all by himself. And he did it for rebels who brought nothing to him, who didn't increase him at all. If he had said, never mind, I'm done with these rebels. Had he gone back and taken his seat at the right hand of God, he'd have been just as glorious. We add nothing to him outside of being trophies of his grace to glorify him. He gets all the credit. He gets all the honor and the glory. And so he sacrificed himself out of obedience to his father. And then we are the beneficiaries of that remarkable kindness. So now how are you going to live that in your life, well, you're going to be called to sacrifice for the good of other people, even if you're not getting anything immediate in return, even if there's not a fair exchange of value, and you're going to do it for Christ's sake because he sacrificed so grandly, so gloriously, so encompassingly for you. And so that becomes your inspiration to live like a Christian. Got all that? So at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And here's how he answered them. He called a child to himself and set him before them. You're going to read later in some of the other accounts that it says that Jesus took the child in his arms. It was a tender moment. And apparently the child was not in any way resisting this the child gladly came to Christ and was in Christ's embrace. He called a child to himself, and he set the child before them, and he said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are turned, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what's he saying? He's saying, first off, you're acting like egocentric grown-ups discussing who's the great one. And this is just human behavior. You get a bunch of men in a room, somebody will become the alpha dog. Somebody out of all the males will become the instinctive leader. Somebody will decide where we're eating. Somebody will take control of the group. It's just the way human beings are. Because we all strive for some level of egocentric gratification, some sense of mastery or leadership. All men by nature, all human beings by nature want to be recognized, want to be accredited. We want to be paid back for the effort and the work that we put in. And Jesus says, you got to get over that. you got to get past that. 
In fact, he draws such a strong line that he tells these 12, you won't even get into the kingdom if you don't change. Okay, so this gives us some idea of the necessity of the Holy Spirit and of the necessity of being born again. You have to be born again or you won't even see the kingdom of heaven. You'll have no part with God if he leaves you in your original condition. Unless he changes you, unless he converts you, unless he enlightens and regenerates you, unless he turns you, unless he gives you the gift of faith and repentance, you have no hope of entering the kingdom of heaven because you're left in your natural, sinful, egocentric state. And this is why he puts his Holy Spirit in those people he has chosen since before the foundation of the world for the purpose of changing them, converting them, borning them again. I just created a brand new verb, borning. Making them new, changing all things about them. Behold, I make all things new. He does that on behalf of his people because left to themselves, they'll remain this kind of egocentric and this kind of self-involved. And they'll miss heaven completely. And so he says you have to be converted. And you have to be like this child. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, well, I'll do it this way. Aiden. Hey, buddy. Come here. Hurry up. Let's go. Okay, this is Aiden. Aiden's my buddy. Did you see how eagerly he came? No guile, no questions, no sense that he might be in trouble or that he was going to get hurt. At the end of every service for the last couple of years, you've all witnessed it. When we stand to pray at the end of the service, he comes running up to come pray with me. Fearlessly, never thinking that there's anything wrong, no danger, no nothing. Okay, that's the way children came to Jesus. Trusting, believing, willingly coming to him, knowing that they were fine in his arms. You understand that? Thank you. Good job. Good demonstration. Go sit back down. Aiden, ladies and gentlemen. Yay. Aiden playing the part of kid. <laughs> but did you see the willingness? I mean, he didn't think it through. He didn't go, oh, what is Pastor Jim up to now? I said, come here. He jumped up and he came here. Okay, I think that's what Jesus is talking about, that children don't know enough yet. They haven't been battered around by life enough yet to set up those kind of defenses. They just trust with an open heart. And he says, that's what you've got to be like. You're so busy worrying about who's going to be great in heaven. You're so worried about your rewards. You're so worried about which one of you is going to rise above the rest of you. You have to become like children who don't think about all that. They just think about acceptance. So he says, you have to be converted and become like children or you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So that was their question. Which of us is greatest? Obviously, they were comparing works. Obviously, they were comparing relative authority. 
You can imagine that Peter, John, and James, the inside group, those are the three that Jesus usually took aside privately with himself, Peter, John, and James. They're the first ones that he chose, Peter, John, and James up on the Mount of Transfiguration. You can see where they would get together and go, you know, it's probably us. We're probably the guys, you know. I mean, really, you look through the gospel, what do you really read about Thaddeus? Anything, you know? That's not a reflection on you. Just because you share the name, you just, you just don't read a whole lot about it. You get a little bit of Philip, you know, a little bit about you know, some stuff. Nathaniel, you know, what do you, what do you really know about him? Not a whole lot. Peter, John, and James are probably like, we're the guys. We're clearly the guys. And Jesus says, you have to be like children and become servant. And you have to stop worrying about who's going to be the greatest because the greatest is the one who's like this child. And you have it so upside down and backwards that you think greatness from the heavenly realm has to do with earthly accomplishment. And God is not interested in earthly accomplishment. He is only interested in what his son accomplished because the best you can accomplish is filthy rags. So, yay you. Go you. You got nothing and it all has to be ultimately about Christ. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I read a couple different commentaries about what that means. But the phrase in my name you know means in my authority sort of under my jurisdiction. So I think what he's getting at here, especially as we look contextually at the contrast he's about to create, I think what he's saying is whoever receives one of these children under my authority or in my name, somebody who teaches a child, encourages a child in the things of Christ, in the ways of Christ, somebody who receives the child as my ambassador, basically. Because in contrast, he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Okay, so now Jesus is talking about whether he's talking literally about children who believe in him or whether he's talking about people who in humility believe in him, who are like children. Either way, he's saying anybody who causes an offense or causes them to stumble in their coming to me, in their faith to me, it would be better for that person to have a stone around their neck and be drowned than to cause someone to stumble on their way to me. But then he admits, verse 7, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. The world is full of stumbling blocks on our way toward Christ. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Okay, so Jesus already admitted it's inevitable. It's going to be tough. As you're going through this life and you're pursuing Christ and you're trying to live out your Christianity in a humble way and you're trying to be biblical in the way that you execute the, the events of your life, there are going to be stumbling blocks. Things are going to pop up. There are going to be problems. There are going to be people who resist. There are going to be people who argue. There are going to be people who threaten. There are going to be situations that are really going to try your faith. 
And Jesus says, and that's inevitable. That's coming. That's why every one of us would be willing to admit that in our life we've had periods where we've been really firm in our faith. Yes, I really got this. And then you're going to go through periods of time where the world just grabs you by the throat and shakes you. You're going to go through periods in your life where you just feel like my faith is wandering and my faith is untethered and I just don't feel secure in Christ and I don't because the world will just batter you because the world does not want you coming to Christ or extolling Christ or preaching Christ because the world realizes that Christ is like a big red flag that says God is real and judgment is coming. And so they'll do everything within their power to suppress righteousness, as Paul says in Romans, that they hold down righteousness. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's the way the world is. So as you wander through the world, there are going to be stumbling blocks to your faith, stumbling blocks to your Christianity. And he says that's inevitable, but woe to the man that brings the stumbling block because judgment is coming. Now, starting in verse 8, Jesus is going to use the chopping off hands, plucking out eyes language. We've seen this before. This is the language that he used during the Sermon on the Mount, and we talked about it then. Because in the history of Christianity, there has never been a movement for chopping off hands or plucking out eyes. From the very earliest inception of the church. So clearly, he's not talking about literal hand chopping or eye plucking. I think what he's saying is genuine and sincere that any man who thinks he can accomplish his own righteousness or achieve his own physical holiness before God would have to do these things. Now, during the Sermon on the Mount, he put it in the context of men and women, relationships between men and women, and adultery. In that context, he said, if any man's eye offends him, he should pluck it out. If his hand offends him, he should chop it off. Better to enter into the kingdom of heaven with one hand than to end up in hell is his argument. But that applies to contextually and historically the group of people he's talking to here at this moment. This is one of the places where we've got to be careful contextually and say that what Jesus is saying here does not apply universally to all believers in the church. Otherwise, the church of Jesus Christ would be identified by how many ways it is maimed. And that's never been the way the Bible describes the church. But before he went to the cross, before he accomplished the redemptive work, in dealing with people who were under the law, who actually believed that they could achieve their own righteousness through their own work, he would always take that work to an extreme to show them their own inability. It's tantamount to when he said, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he leveled the playing field, said, you got to do better than the guys that are trying. The scribes and the Pharisees are trying, and they're not good enough. So you got to do better than them. He was showing the futility of a legalistic approach to trying to achieve self-righteousness. And I think that's what he's getting at here when he says, if you think that you can achieve your righteousness through chopping off hands or plucking out eyes, 
or if you think you can achieve your own righteousness through your own works or through your own flesh, then you better start chopping off offensive hands and plucking out offensive eyes because that's the only way you're going to be able to be personally good enough. And this is still in the context of talking about these little ones, these little children, because verse 10, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. So it's still in the context of the children, and it's still in the context of laying stumbling blocks. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, he's still talking about these stumbling blocks. So you're going to go through stumbling blocks from the world. There are the external stumbling blocks. Those are inevitable, says Jesus. But then you're also going to have your own personal stumbling blocks. You're going to have your own personal problems. Whatever those problems may be. And then he says, if it's your hand or your foot that causes you to stumble, then cut it off and throw it away from you because it's better that you enter into life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it away from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. And yet, as I said, nowhere in the history of the church do you see the theology of hand-chopping, eye-plucking. None of the apostles writing to the church write that. None of them encourage that behavior because if we were left to ourselves, if we were left to our flesh, if we were not converted and we had to get into the kingdom, then every time we caused any kind of offense we'd be better off mutilating ourselves. But since that is so extreme and really, let's be honest, so undoable, is that a word? So impossible to do, Jesus goes to the cross and accomplishes righteousness for us. I think what he's demonstrating here is that to these unconverted, unturned people, the best hope they have in their unconverted state is to so take charge of their own physical bodies that they would chop pieces off that would offend them. That's the best hope they have. But our hope is obviously in Christ and his finished work, and that's why the church never promoted the theology of hand-chopping or eye-plucking, because it's not necessary in the church Because our righteousness is accomplished in the finished work of Christ. But the next time you see somebody who thinks that they can accomplish their own righteousness by their own works, by their own effort, in their own flesh, check and see if they have all their parts. You know, in the history of the church, there have been cloisters of monks that you can read about, especially during the Dark Ages, who who took this stuff seriously, who did cut away at their own bodies in an attempt to reduce their own temptation. Many of them would castrate themselves, thinking that that would stop some of their uh, sexual proclivities. But what they didn't realize was the problem, ultimately, is not your hand or your foot or your eye. The problem is your mind. The problem is your sinful, depraved heart. 
And if you're going to start cutting off parts to accomplish your own righteousness, you're going to have to dig your heart out of your chest and bury it somewhere. Because your heart is depraved. Your heart is hard against God. And your mind is depraved and wicked. So you can see the impossibility that Jesus is presenting. When he says to these unturned, unconverted people, if you were to put any kind of a stumbling block in front of a child who believes in me, it'd be better for you that you have a stone around your neck and you're cast into the deepest sea. That would be better than what's going to happen to you eternally. And if you're going to go around causing stumbles or if your own body causes you to stumble, then you'd be better off chopping off a hand or plucking out an eye or cutting off a foot than standing in judgment. That's what he's getting at. He's showing the absolute impossibility of individual human righteousness in an unconverted state, in an unturned state. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. I think he was speaking a reality there. Jesus talked all the time about heaven like it was his living room. He spoke about heaven with such intimacy that he knew it front and back, top to bottom. And every once in a while, he would make these statements that are just so far beyond our comprehension. Here he says, don't despise one of the little ones that are coming to him. Don't be a stumbling block to them. Don't turn them away. Encourage them. Receive them in my name. And if you discourage them in any way, remember that they're angels. I think that's guardian angels. I don't know how else to read it. But their angels always behold my father's face. Okay, what does that tell you? They have a direct line to the throne of God. The angels that watch over and protect the children of God continually see the face of God. You don't want to get in the middle of that. You don't want to cause that child to stumble or to turn away from Christ because he has an advocate who can go straight to God and say, do you see what's going on down there? You don't want to be part of that. Now, can you see why Jesus would say, you'd be better off plucking out an eye than doing that. Then verse 11 says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. If you have notes in your Bible, you may see that that is a textual variant. The earliest manuscripts don't include that phrase right there, but it is a biblical phrase. If you were to look at Luke 19.10, you'll find that phrase. It is a biblical phrase. It is something that Jesus said, but the earliest copies of Matthew don't have that phrase right there. And in the past, when we've talked about these kind of textual variants, especially one like this that is biblical, usually it's the result of some copyist somewhere who's so familiar with the text that he just by memory thinks that fits there, belongs there. And so he mistakenly puts it in as he's doing the copying. And then every copy that comes from that copy repeats that mistake. But because we have so many manuscripts of the New Testament books, it's easy to compare and contrast and that's why we can find these little variants. This particular textual variant obviously does no damage whatsoever. It doesn't change anybody's theology about anything. It does make a very real and positive statement that, in fact, is quoted by Luke. So verifiably, it came from Jesus. And so the Son of Man has come to save 
that which was lost. So if we were to look at it contextually, I mean, why would a copyist put it right there? I think it's because this whole thing has to do with be converted. You have to be converted. And if you're not converted, then you'd better chop off hands and pluck out eyes. But the answer to that is Christ, because Christ came to seek and to save those that are lost. He came to convert people. He's the one who brings the new birth. So what do you think? He's still talking about the children. Verse 12, he's still talking about the children. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one that's gone straying? A good shepherd, a quality shepherd, knows exactly how many sheep are in his flock and does, in fact, call them by name. And, in fact, sheep do know their shepherd's voice. Oftentimes, in the Middle East, even to this day, flocks will be combined into pens and holding areas. But those that belong to a particular shepherd will come when that shepherd calls because they know their shepherd's voice and he calls them out, oftentimes by name. Well, so Jesus uses again one of these shepherd analogies and says a good shepherd, a quality shepherd, if he's got a hundred sheep and one wanders off, he doesn't go, oh well, bye bye don't fall in a ditch, hope there's no wolves. But I got these 99 to take care of. No, instead he'll put them in a safe place. He says he leaves them on the mountains. But then he'll go find the one that wandered off. And if it turns out that he finds that one that wandered off, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. For it's not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Okay, that's great. Mm -hmm. Because he has just said, there are going to be all kinds of stumbling blocks in your life. You as a child of God, coming to Christ in simple faith, trying to be childlike, trying not to be egocentric, being converted, being regenerate, having the Spirit of God guiding you, you're walking through this life and there's going to be all kinds of stumbling blocks all kinds of things that are going to get in your way and make it hard for you to pursue your Christianity. And you're going to wander off. Because after all, you're sheep. But the good news for you is, even when you are so struck by all of these various temptations and stumbling blocks in life, even when you reach that point where you feel like you're just so far away, I get email from folks all the time, saying, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've just done. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know how I feel. I, I can't believe I'm even Christian at this point. Oh, I've been in the church 20, 30, 40 years, and then I end up here. I can't believe I'm here again. I can't believe this is what I'm like. How could Jesus save somebody like me? Well, the answer is right here. You wandered off. Yes, absolutely. You wandered off. No doubt. Dumb sheep. Bye-bye. And you're not going to be able to find your way back. You're not going to be able to get your way back. That's usually what people want to know. What do I got to do? How do I get back? How do I fix this? The answer is always Jesus. The answer is always Christ. He's the good shepherd. If you belong to him, he's going to come get you. Not only is he going to come get you, but he's going to come get you and return you to the fold. 
Why? Because you're his. The shepherd doesn't go looking for other people's sheep. The shepherd looks for his sheep. And notice what he says. And when he finds them or returns them to the fold, he celebrates more than the 99 that didn't wander off. Because, here I think is why this was included by the copyist, because the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. So if you're one of those wandering sheep, or if you're one of those not converted yet sheep, you belong to him, but you haven't been changed, you haven't been turned yet, he's going to come get you. He's going to turn you. He's going to change you. He's going to enlighten you. He's going to regenerate you. He's going to put his spirit inside you because you're his. You're so his that he wrote your name down before the foundation of the world. He secured you in the Lamb's book of life. And then he came and got you. And he came and got you because you're his. And because he's the good shepherd. And because it's his job to look after you. Because if he doesn't look after you, given how evil this world is and all the stumbling blocks and all the temptations, if he doesn't look after you, you'll wander off. But anytime you've wandered off, anytime you've chased this world, anytime you've chased yourself, your own ego, and then have been restored, you know that's not you. You know you didn't do that. Because you know left to yourself, you'd still be wandering. Anybody want to testify? Because I know you all. You're just as rebellious as I am. In your heart and your mind and in your flesh, this sinful flesh, you still want your way. You still want your ego. You still get caught up in the world. We were talking in the men's meeting about Paul writing about whatever things are good and true and right. Think on these things. We all left here with this sense of purpose. Yes, that's what I'm going to do. That's my plan. How many of you did it for more than 48 hours? How many of you knew? Why? Because this world that we live in is just so full of distractions. And the distractions are not always right and good and pure and holy and The distractions are oftentimes those things that attract the basest instinct of our nature. And so we wander off. But what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. Thus, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Okay, so the almighty, the sovereign one has just told you what his will is. What is the will of God? The will of God is that none of those that belong to him are ever lost. So what's going to be the end result of that? None of those that belong to him are ever going to be lost. Because he's absolutely sovereign. This is why I love the theology that the Bible presents. Why I love the language of sovereignty. Because I know for a fact that left to myself, I would act just like myself. And myself is not good. And I would wander off happily, ignorantly, stupidly, and fall into a ditch somewhere and and probably die there. 
the only reason that I have any hope, the only reason that I have any confidence, the only reason that I can leave this planet securely is because the will of God is that none of those that belong to him are ever lost. And if the one who has all the power and all the authority says, this is my will, then that's going to happen. The one who can speak everything into existence is the one who can keep Todd, right? The one who can calm storms just by saying, peace, be still. That guy can bring peace to Micah's heart. That guy. I just referred to Jesus as that guy. That one, that holy one, can bring peace to those of us who are struggling in this lifetime. He's secure. He's rigorous. He doesn't change. Everything in this world changes. Stumbling blocks come and go. The evil wants to eat us up, sift us like wheat. This world is so full of temptations that appeal to our flesh, that left to ourselves, we're a goner. But it's such good news that we have the spirit of the all-powerful sovereign God residing inside us, acting as a governor on our thoughts and behavior, pulling us back to him and reminding us of the truth, knowing full well that we're going to be okay because the sovereign of the universe won't lose us even when we're trying to get lost. And I love that theology. Because I grew up on the theology that says, don't get lost. And that did me no good at all. The theology that says, the God of everything never loses, well, I can go to sleep on that. I know it's going to be okay. Yeah? Yes, Questions? We're good? Okay, now when you get home, don't chop off any hands. Don't pluck out any eyes. I mean, you can do it, but it's not going to change you or fix you at all. Chop off all your extremities, and you'll find out you're just as depraved when you get done as you were when you started. Every head in the room was nodding. Yes, we just, as a group, confessed to God that, boy, we got nothing. All right? Good. Say goodbye to the digital congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.